Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Andy Hagens. Andy is the co-founder of Wealth Channel, and he was one of the first guests on this podcast. So Andy, nice to have you back. I'm excited to be here, and it's our first uh, live show, uh, live show with you, I should say. Uh, you, you know, anything can happen when we're live, so kind of exciting. Yes, very uh, excited to be doing this. Excited about this podcast in general, Andy. We started this a couple of months ago. The reception has been tremendous. Uh, a lot of listeners tuning in. We've also gotten some questions from folks. They like the topics we're talking about, but have some questions of their own. So we thought, let's do a live podcast and let's do a mailbag. Let's try to answer some of these questions that have come in. I asked Andy to sort through the questions, pick out some good ones he wanted to throw at me today. He did give me a heads up. He let me know what he's going to be asking me so I could make sure I, I was prepared here. So Andy, I think you got some good ones picked out. I guess with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, fire yeah. away with some questions. A couple of these are from our private Slack. So, I mean, it, you know, these are... These are real people asking these. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I'll get to the question in just a sec, Michael, but just the whole genesis of your show, I feel like it's you because you're the guy that people are always asking these questions to. And you were just kind of answering them anyway. And then it's like, well, you know what? Maybe I should start recording some of this and spreading this. Now, okay. I, I got the first question lined up here. I barely even know what UTMAs are. So this, this is going to be very educational for me. Uh, I recently set up UTMAs for each of my three kids and have been funding via the $34,000 gifts my wife and I are allowed each year. I'm a little confused about how I make sure I get the tax benefits of these contributions on my tax return. So, Michael, you got to start. Please tell me what it is a UTMA. Sure. So this is a good question here, and I think we're going to help set this person straight. So a UTMA, Uniform Transfer to Minors Act, essentially it is a custodial account. So you can set up uh, an, an account, a brokerage account, essentially for your kid. Uh, and the benefit here is this is a way around the, the lifetime estate tax exemption. So it's a way to get money to your kids, to get money to future generations. It actually doesn't have to be your kids. Um, a lot of times that's how, how folks use it, though. So you can get money to them and it doesn't count towards your lifetime estate tax exemption. Uh, so not really applicable for, for a lot of people here. Um, you know, if, if you're under the, I think it's about $13 million threshold right now, twice that if you're married. Um, but it's worth noting that in some states, Andy, I live in Oregon, there's a much lower estate tax threshold uh, for the state of Oregon. It's a million dollars. So a lot more people are going to be over that. So anyways, UTMA is a custodial account. It's a way to get money to your kids uh, without triggering that uh, kind of working around uh, that estate tax exemption. And what was referenced here, you're allowed to give $17,000 a year as an individual $34,000 if you're married, and it, it won't count towards that. So I, I think, though, Andy, I think this investor is a little bit confused about what the benefits of the UTMA are. Like I mentioned, the real benefit is estate planning. It's a good way to get money to future generations. But there's a pretty marginal tax benefit here. 
Um, there's, there's a little bit of one. So let me, let me talk through what the tax benefit is here, um, Andy. So if you set up a UTMA, so let's just say you put, you just say you put $20,000 uh, into a UTMA for your kid and it, they're going to get some dividend income, right, Andy? Some dividends or, or capital gain income. The first $1,250 of that unearned income is tax-free. So they, they won't have to pay taxes on that. So it's saving you just a little bit of money. Uh, and then the next $1,250, the, the kid is going to pay the kitty tax rate, and that's 10%. So I, I put up on this, the screen here trying to quantify this. That first $1,250, instead of being taxed at the parent's rate, let's say it's 20%, they're in the, the 20% tax bracket for, for dividends and for capital gains, going to save them about 250 bucks a year. The next $1,250 Instead of paying 20%, they pay 10%, saves them another 125 bucks. Pretty marginal benefits here. So I think what we're sorting out here, I think that the person asking this question thought that this was more like a 401k where you make this contribution to the UTMA and mm -hmm. you get to reduce your income this year. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. So I mean, it's, it's, it's more I'm like taking post-tax dollars. I've already earned this yep. income. It's post-tax but now I get to put it in a vehicle where now it can um, it can grow tax-free, but only to a certain extent in the sense that if I put very much in this type of account, it's going to exceed these limits that are on the screen here, the first 1250 in income. Yeah, that's right. And, and after that, it doesn't grow tax-free. There's no tax-free withdrawals like there would be for a, a Roth IRA. So I don't want to say it's a fully taxable account because you get this little bit, this $375 of, of savings a year. So there's a little bit of a tax advantage. It's pretty minimal, though. The, the benefit here, Andy, like I mentioned, is when you're passing this on, it's a, it's a way to get money down to future generations. So uh, pretty, pretty marginal benefit from a tax perspective here. So, um, you know, you're, you're not missing out. There's no place on your tax return where you say, hey, I gave $20,000 into my kid's UTMA, so I'm reducing my income. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Great savings, uh, great tool for estate planning, not so great for immediate tax savings. Yeah, so a good way to maybe transfer wealth to your kids and pay less in taxes when you pass on. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of a 529 and that it's an efficient way to you know, put some funds in your kid's name. The 529 obviously needs to be used for education costs, whereas from what I understand, this looks like it's more general, but this has a much lower ceiling in terms of its tax advantages, right? Because the 529s, um, you can fund those with quite a bit of money. Yeah, you nailed it, Andy. You can get a lot more money into a 529, got much narrower uses, has to be used for education. Um so you got more flexibility in a UTMA, but uh, you're not going to get much tax-free growth. You're not going to get tax-free withdrawals. Um, so pretty limited use for that. Um, but we, we do actually have an episode, Andy, coming up. I just did one with Alvin Carlos. He was an awesome guest. We're going to talk all about the UTMA. So keep an eye out for that. Now, okay, I've been saying 529 for like a decade. You're telling me it's 529? I, <laughs> tomato, I feel, tomato. <laughs> I feel pretty dumb now. Okay. Well, I, I do use 529, so I'm, I'm not an expert in them, but I'm, I'm pretty experienced with them. But, but apparently I've been saying them wrong. Well, let's move on to the next question. I think uh, this one is really interesting to me. Uh, the, the question is, quote, I set up Roth IRAs for each of my kids and I'm funding $200 a month into each of them. 
with the money that they earn from chores, do you think I'm taking on too much audit risk? End quote. Um, can I just say, I got nothing against this strategy. I just generally find it hilarious that you're someone would be paying their kids to do chores and then that's earned income and it can go into a Roth IRA. I, you know, I don't have any objection to it. I just think it's, it's humorous. It's very yeah. creative. Uh, it's creative. It's brilliant too, Andy. I did an episode with, with Chris Carosa, another phenomenal guest talking all about the child IRA. I mean, the, the math, Andy, the, the brilliance of, of compounding returns, if you can start a Roth IRA for your kids as young as possible, uh, and by the time they get to retirement, uh, it, it you know, compounding returns works its, its wonders and they've got a tremendous amount of money. Um, it's weird to be thinking about retirement planning for your kids, but it's a really smart thing to be doing here. So the, the challenge, though, Andy, it's pretty easy to set up technically a Roth IRA for your kid. You can do it at, at Vanguard pretty easily. What's hard is they need what's called earned income to be able to contribute to it. So they've got to be making money and able, in order to be able to contribute. They can put in for 2023, they can put in $6,500 or their total earned income, whichever is less. So the tough part is getting your kids earned income, uh, Andy. So that's, that's what this is, you know, a way that, um, that, that some people do this is, um, they, they pay their kids um, to do chores. Um, so to get to the answer to this question, that's a gray area, uh, paying kids to, to do chores. There's a couple principles here. One, you've got to be paying them what is like a fair market rate. Um, I'd suggest using the, the minimum wage. Um, and, and then what's appropriate based on their, their skills and the value that they're providing. Um, but unfortunately, there's no like really hard and fast guidelines here from the IRS around this concept of, of chores and what constitutes, uh, what constitutes earned income. So I realize that's a little bit, uh, I don't want to totally punt on this. So I'll give you my opinion is that paying your kids to do chores and then using that to fund a Roth IRA is probably pretty aggressive. I think that if someone really, if the IRS really challenged you on that, um, you'd be hard pressed to defend it. So what I would say is you can kind of actually look at chores in kind of two buckets. There's what is expected as a member of the household, meaning you're not going to pay your kids for clearing their dishes at the end of a meal, uh, for brushing their teeth, things like that, that they're expected to do as a member of the household. Now, what you might justify paying them for is maybe they've got a younger sibling and they're going to teach them piano. Uh, or they're going to help them with their math homework, things like that, that are kind of going uh, above and beyond what would be considered, you know, just what you're doing as a, as a member of the household. Um, so it, I think that's what you'd want to what you'd want to air towards, um, kind of those, I guess, going above and beyond tasks, uh, as opposed to the the really basic stuff that's just an allowance. Um, and Andy, whatever you do, uh, really important to just keep records of this. Doesn't need to be fancy. Fire up a Google sheet, the date they did it, the amount you paid them, what it was for, how long it took them. Uh, you know, your kid's not going to be filing a tax return, but this way you've got a record of it if you are ever audited. Yeah, you know, it's I, again, I got to I got to give this listener points for creativity and uh you know, the logic of it checks out. My objection is, is and every family is different, right? So no judgment on any other parents, but I'm like, I want my kids to understand they have to do chores just because they're a member of the household, right? That And if we give them an allowance, it's because we're being generous parents. It's not because 
Mm-hmm. You know, they really earn anything by doing chores. That being said, I'm a big fan of kids getting jobs. Yeah. At a really, you know, I'm not talking like a five-year-old um, going to the salt mines or something, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when, when Michael, when you and I were 14, we were bagging groceries and yeah. uh, getting grocery carts at the grocery store, our local grocery store. Right. And it's uh, great for life lessons and, um, just building work ethic. I have to say when I was 14, I was not a long-term thinker. It was like payday. It was probably about yep. 60, 60 minute maximum before that paycheck was spent. Yep. 5.25 an hour, Andy. I still remember <laughs> that was the, that was a going rate for bagging groceries at, at Kroger back in the day. So yeah, if, if only, if only we'd funded our Roth IRAs, you know, we'd be, we'd be retired right now and um, yeah, you know, ha- yeah. having a conversation in Hawaii or something. That's, that's right. Um, yeah, I wish that, you know, I, I love my parents and, and not to, to fault them here, but I wish that they had known about a child IRA back then and, and could have funded that. Uh, either I could. So a, a neat thing about this, Andy, if the, the kid can use their money, but they don't have to. The kid can spend the money on Pokemon cards and pixie sticks or whatever kids kids buy nowadays. Uh, as long as they've got the earned income, the parent can then can then fund it. So say the kid makes four thousand dollars bagging groceries they spend it as soon as they get it. Uh, if the parent wants to, they can take $4,000 of their money and, and fund that IRA uh, at age 14 or 15 or whenever they're bagging groceries. So um, this is a really, really, I think, overlooked, but um, an incredibly uh, valuable strategy um, and a good way to teach kids about money, too. So uh, go check out the episode I did with Chris Carosa all about the child IRA. I will be doing this for my kid as soon as I can can legally justify it. Uh, he's nine months old, Andy, so um, going to be hard to uh, to make a claim that I'm uh, getting value paying him to do to do chores around the house. But uh, as soon as he's able to mow lawns or, or babysit, um, anything he makes will be going into a, a Roth IRA. Hey, if you're old enough to walk, you're old enough to push a broom, you know, might be a small <laughs> broom, but uh, let's not put limits on that. Okay. All joking aside, uh, these next two questions, I think, are really good Um and I think at least one of these is from our private Slack channel that we have with our friends who are, you know, some high net worth investors who are really looking at tax efficiency as a core part of their strategy. Can we just talk about that for, for a second, Michael? I mean, I know that's yeah. such a big theme on your show. Everyone is chasing alpha The you know, the, the higher returns is kind of the sexy psychological appeal but uh, just a good tax efficient strategy. It's, it's like free alpha. It's like guaranteed alpha, right? That's right, Andy. It's, it's the free lunch. Nobody talks about it. Um, it, It's amazing. If you just use what's legally available to you, Uh, we're not talking about, you know, hiring a a team of accountants or or lawyers and and doing things that are going to end up with you in jail. Uh, But just some basic, you know, taking advantage of the incentives that are in the tax code that, that not only are legal, but, they're there because the government actually wants you to use them, right? They're incentives because they want to incentivize this behavior. Uh, but, but so many people, because they're overwhelmed by taxes or they just don't know any better or they're not aware, don't take advantage of these. And they end up, you know, they end up paying a lot more than they, they could or they should. They end up working longer than they need to, not enjoying their retirement. So um, it, it's my soapbox, Andy. It's a, you know, something I'm really passionate as you, about, as you can tell. Um, people should pay less in taxes and they should use it instead to, to do what they're passionate about. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the key for me is realizing 
saving money, saving on taxes, like psychologically, that seems like a low value thing, right? To, to some of us, to some people. But then when you think about that net difference, right? If that if the tax drag on returns is one or two percent, and if you think about, well, I can net that additional one or two percent, that's just as valuable as generating one or two percent of alpha, right? And then you think about that compounding, if you're saving that one or two percent every year. And then it's, you know, adding to your capital base. And then that's compounding every year with that additional one to 2% triple net return over time, the numbers become tremendous. And I know in your podcast on your show with some of the, you know, whiteboards or decks you've done, you've shown some of these examples, the absolute dollar amount over 20, 30 years ends up being huge with a lot of these tax strategies. Yep, that's right, Andy. Compound compound returns is the eighth wonder of the world. I think Albert Einstein said that, and uh, truer words have never been spoken. He was a pretty smart guy. Pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, question three. I own my own business, which I plan to run and eventually sell. Well, I hope you're already running it. You own your own business, which you plan to run. Like, who's, who's running this business right now? <laughs> 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 okay, I, I think I think they mean they're they're running it now. They plan to eventually sell it. Okay, I think that it may be a smart move to shift the interest in the LLC into a Roth IRA so that I can avoid taxes when I sell. How can I go about doing this? So they're talking about right now they personally own their business through an LLC, but can they shift the ownership of the LLC? into their Roth IRA or into a new Roth IRA that they set up. Is that what they're basically asking? I think that's what they're getting at. And and their heart is in the right place because this is a really smart move. A Roth IRA, Andy, so you contribute to a Roth IRA with after-tax dollars. So you pay taxes and then with whatever's left over, you can fund a Roth IRA. That money then grows tax-free. And then at the, at the end, uh, when you are retired, you make tax-free withdrawals from that account. So when whatever you take out, you don't owe any taxes on it. It's a phenomenal uh, wealth generation vehicle. I'm so, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Is this is this the uh, I don't want to say the exploit. Is this the hack that Mitt Romney used to get you know five hundred million dollars in his IRA or whatever? So you thinking of you might be thinking of Peter Thiel. There was an article a few years ago about, <laughs> okay. about Peter Thiel, a PayPal uh, PayPal co-founder. Yeah. Uh, he, he. Yes. There's there's an article in, in ProPublica about this. What Peter Thiel did, he has five billion dollars in his Roth IRA. <laughs> what he did is he bought his startup shares, his founder shares in PayPal in his okay. Roth IRA when PayPal was a uh, little more than an idea, not worth much. And then obviously that business did very well. And the you, know, you can only get a few thousand dollars a year into a Roth IRA. But when you're investing in uh, an early stage idea like PayPal and it goes to the moon, um, it, it can balloon. Um, and, and, you know, he's done that. He's not the only one. Um, I think Warren Buffett has a couple million dollars in his Roth IRA. Uh, there's some other hedge fund guys who have gotten huge Roth IRAs uh, by, by doing this. Um, so it, it's a great strategy. And in, in general, Andy, you don't, you don't, you know, everyone can take advantage of this in a way you want to have what you expect to be your best performing assets in your Roth IRA. So that might be as simple as, you know, I think that uh, emerging market stocks are going to do really well over the next 20 years. Uh, I'm going to own them in, in my Roth IRA and I'll own U.S. stocks somewhere else and bonds somewhere else. So 
the strategy here is sound. You want to own whatever you think is going to be your best performing assets. You want to have that in a Roth IRA because think about if Peter Thiel had put his, uh, he, he bought them instead in uh, a traditional IRA um, where he would have limit, he would have saved a couple thousand bucks mm. in taxes when he bought them, but then he'd have to pay taxes on the withdrawal of this $5 billion. Uh, that would not have been smart because they have to pay taxes at ordinary income rates uh, in in the traditional IRA. So, brilliant move here by him and and by the asker. Wait, so sorry, it, maybe this is complicated. So, if if I have if I'm Peter Thiel, I have this five billion dollar capital gain, basically, or yeah. whatever it was, five or six billion dollar capital gain. When I withdraw that money, I'm not even paying the capital gains tax rate. I'm actually paying ordinary income tax rate on that withdrawal. From a traditional IRA, that, that's oh, right. Okay, that's right. If it's a if it's a, in a traditional IRA, because think about it, you didn't you used pre tax dollars to fund it. Mm -hmm. So when you contribute to it, a traditional IRA, you reduce your taxable income for that year, and and you don't pay taxes then. So you've got to be taxed on that eventually. So the the deal you make with the devil is, or, or in this case, uh, the IRS. And there's a softball joke for someone who wants to say there's no difference, but. Um, <laughs> you're going to pay taxes at ordinary income rates whenever you want to, whenever you want to pull it out. Okay. Got so, it. So let, let's get back to the question here though. This person has a company that I assume they think is going to be worth quite a bit. It's going to do pretty well. And they think, man, I'm going to get hit with capital gains. Uh, I should own this in a Roth IRA instead. Uh, so, so great idea. Um, unfortunately it's not quite that simple. Um, Andy, so first of all, you've got to set up what would be called a self-directed IRA. Uh, and I just did a, an episode uh, with Karen Hall. She, she runs a self-directed IRA firm all about this. Um, so you'd set up a self-directed IRA to, to own startup shares because your, your Vanguard IRA, you can't own, can't own startup shares. You're kind of limited to what you can own. So where this gets tricky, though, is the Roth, your, your Roth IRA, your self-directed Roth IRA would have to purchase these shares in the startup at fair market value. And there's this pesky little thing called prohibited transaction rules. And basically, you have to buy these shares from someone. You can't just transfer them. Your, your mm -hmm. IRA has to buy these shares from someone. They have to buy them at a fair market value. And you can't buy them from yourself. You can't buy them from your spouse. Uh, in a lot of cases, you can't just uh, own them, or you can't just buy them directly from the company. So unfortunately, Andy, it gets really tricky, um, and and in some cases, pretty much impossible to to do this without incurring a ton of audit risk. Um, so basically, what you can do, you can do what Peter Thiel did. He he bought shares from a third party um, at at a fair market value. You can purchase all the shares at the founding of a company. Well, wow, well, wasn't he? Wasn't he a founder though, or was he just an early investor? Uh, he, I believe he was a founder, Andy. And I believe the way that they did it is he he was able to purchase uh, founder shares. I would guess that you know I would guess that honestly, if the IRS scrutinized that transaction uh, enough, again, there's a lot of gray area here. Um, they could maybe they could maybe make a case that that was a prohibited transaction. Um, talk talk about a forward thinker though. I mean, he was a founder. And he figured out how to do this exact thing that we're yeah. talking about, which sounds like is legal if you 
kind of set the table perfectly, but yeah, most right. o- most entrepreneurs and most founders probably won't set the table perfectly. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah, so and you, and you need on. to set it perfectly. And in a lot of cases, it's it's unfortunately uh, going to be too late. You, you need to do it kind of at the start of the company, mm-hmm. or else you're going to have trouble uh, buying shares. Your IRA is going to have to buy shares from someone who is not a related party. So you can't buy them from yourself. You can't buy them from your spouse. Uh, that, that's where it gets it gets tricky. And even if you do manage to buy the shares, there's a whole bunch of rules about you essentially cannot contribute sweat equity to the business, which gets tough if it's your business. Um, and in some cases, if you have control, you can't receive uh, a salary. Um, so you essentially need to not be in control um, and, and not contributing sweat equity. So it's not impossible, Andy, but it's pretty tough. Um, you know, like, I'd suggest that if you want to do this, you reach out to a self-directed IRA company. Um, I mentioned the episode with, with Karen Hall at Udirect is, is her company um, and, and talk through this. The other tip I would give is you can have multiple IRAs. And if you want to do this, you should set up a Roth IRA that's going to own just this hmm. so that if it does get disqualified, you're not disqualifying the entire IRA. Um, you know, if that makes sense, Andy. So have one, one Roth IRA that owns your plain vanilla stuff, your index funds, your stocks and bonds. Set up another one that you're going to own the shares of your startup in if you're able to do it from the beginning and, and kind of navigate this, this landmine here. Um, and then that way, you know, even if, if you do get dinged, if it does get ruled a prohibited transaction, you're not jeopardizing because if that happens, it's the entire IRA that gets disqualified. And that's, um, that's really asset protection 101. Yeah. I mean, I understand yep. and this is in the context of tax planning and tax efficiency, but even if you're going to be an investor or a founder in multiple LLCs, right? This is why you put them in uh, ownership. Each individual LLC owns a company or you even set up a, an LLC to invest in another company because if one entity gets, uh, I hate to use the term, contaminated, <laughs> legally contaminated, yep. uh then that you know that contamination is is limited to that one entity or in this case that one IRA. Exactly right, Andy. Same principle as <clears throat> owning real estate. Um, you know, a lot of times folks who own real estate will have each property in a separate LLC. Um, yep, exact same principle. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. We got one more question. Although I, I don't want to rush through this or anything. This question to me, this is the most interesting one. Because uh, 529s are, you know, they, they offer a tremendous amount of tax advantaged space. I don't know if I'm using the right word, volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so th- you know, they have their limitations or their, I don't want to say drawbacks, but like, you know, they have to be used for education or you're going to be, you know, owing some additional money when the money is withdrawn. But I feel like there's been a couple different questions about how to, transfer wealth to your kids. And at least in my experience, the 529 maybe is, is the best in a lot of situations. The bit sort of the biggest, the biggest squirt gun I can bring to the squirt gun fight, the super soaker 50, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's right, Andy. You can get, a, you know, we're just talking about how great the Roth IRA is. Unfortunately, you can put $6,500 a year into it. Exactly. Um, you can get a lot more as we'll talk about in a minute into a 529. So wait, it's five two nine or five twenty nine? 
I'm just going to keep going back and forth just to mess with you. <laughs> okay. Here's the no question. Answer. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the question. I quote super funded a five, two, nine for my kid a few years ago. And actually I just want to pause there and talk about what the super funding is. So the super funding means every year uh, as an individual, you can give a certain amount of money to any individual in the world, including your own kids without w- without it counting against your uh, estate tax, right? So it's like that gift, gift tax threshold. And also your spouse can give the same amount. And then in the case of a 529, it w- with any of your children, or actually maybe any 529 recipient, I'm not sure about that, right. but you, you, you can um, gift them five years of that amount at once. So it's really, if you're married, you and your spouse, whatever that exemption amount is times 10 is the limit for that. You could fund all of that. So you could literally have uh, like our business partner, Jimmy, he just welcomed a newborn onto this earth. You know, you could literally on the way home from the hospital where I got the funds ready to go, 529 on vanguard.com, um, bam, 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 fund 10, 10 times that exemption amount yep. up front. Uh, and, and really the earlier, the better because then it has more time to compound. So sorry for that little aside. I just wanted to give everybody context to what a super funding of 529 is. By the way, Michael, do we have those amounts handy? Like the... Yeah, Andy. So it's for for 2023, it's $17,000 per per person. So a a married couple could do 34,000. You multiply that by five or you multiply 17,000 by 10, you get $170,000, Andy, that you can super fund a, a 529 with. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think when our first was born, uh, almost 11 years ago, it was like $140,000. So that yep. apparently that number is changing over time. By the way, we're getting some uh, user interaction in the live stream here. we got a couple comments um and, and and other questions just to hit these real quick feedback it's definitely pronounced 529 529 not 529 mystery solved okay 529 good to know thank you um and another question is there a way to do a catch-up contribution for 529s we're going to get to that question in just a second i'm going to go back to the original question because i didn't even get to that yet i wanted to talk about what super funding was because i think super funding i mean Michael, anytime I hear super funding some kind of a tax account, I'm like already interested. Like, you know, so I super funded a 529 for my kid a few years ago. And a couple of things have changed. First, the portfolio has done really well. Second, I think my son may now go to trade school. That's a great idea, by the way, to whoever wrote this question, which will cost about $40,000 instead of $200,000 like I was planning on. I think I'll still come out ahead if I withdraw money from the 529, but is that the best option? And so what this question is getting at is, you know, I I think there are various tax advantage vehicles that you can fund even knowing like I may kind of break the rules later with this tax advantage vehicle. And I understand that when you break the rules, when you withdraw the money for yada, yada, you may have to pay a penalty or some sort of additional tax at that point, but you still in the meantime might be getting 15, 20 years of tax-free growth and it may net out to being worth it. So I think that's what this question is getting at is if you don't end up using that 529 
for education expenses. But if you super fund it when a child is like one years old, and so it's grown tax-free for two decades in the meantime, is it still going to net out to be worth it? Is it still a good wealth transfer vehicle in that case? Yeah. No, I think it's a great question. And it kind of gets at there's some inherent uncertainty in, in a, five two, uh, a 529, 529, uh, whatever we're saying. Um, I think either is okay, by the way. <clears throat> um, you, you know, you don't know how this, this portfolio is going to perform. You don't know what college is going to cost in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's a great problem to have, Andy. But um, if you overfund your 529, you pay for college, you pay for all the qualified expenses, and you've still got money in there. Um, what happens and, and how concerned should you be about that? So I'm going to try something um, here, Andy, a little bit different. I'm going to go through, let people inside kind of how my, how my brain works and how I like to think about these things. So I, I put together a little spreadsheet here. The way that I like to do this is I think about, okay, two scenarios. So the first scenario, let's say that I contribute to a 529, it's overfunded, and then at the end of the day, I've got to take money out of that and pay the taxes and pay the penalty. So you put in $170,000, let's say it grows at 6% a year for 18 years. Andy, at the end of the day, and after those 18 years, again, the beauty of compounded returns, you've got $485,000. Nice, yeah, wow. I mean, that's tax-free growth right there. That's what we were talking about. Okay. Yep. So it, it, using this example, let's say you end up using only about $45,000 of that to, to fund the qualified educational expenses. So that amount you get to withdraw tax-free from the 529 that's going in this hypothetical example, that's going to pay for trade school. That leaves you with a ton of money in there, Andy, still. You've got $440,000 in there. So now to, to pause, by the way, I, one thing we do want for whoever asked this question the recipient or whoever is in the 529 name, they can always just keep it in here and then they may have children of their own and then they can reassign the beneficiary to them. So I just want to put in that footnote that even if you don't spend the money on education expenses, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to withdraw it. It can still continue to grow. Is that right, Michael? That's absolutely right. So yes. So, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little more, but I'm glad you brought that up, Andy. So what you can do if you have money left over, you can name a new beneficiary. And what most people do, let's say they pay for their kid's college and there's still money left in there. They can leave it in there. And then their kid has a kid, they're a grandparent. They change the beneficiary from their kid to their grandkid. Uh, And and you're able to do that without incurring any sort of penalty. And then all of a sudden you've got a nicely funded 529 plan for um, the the next generation. So that's going to be the best option, Andy, to jump to the end here in a lot of cases. Hmm. That's a a great way to deal with an overfunded 529 is to change the beneficiary. And by the way, it doesn't it could be a niece or nephew. It could be yourself. If you want to go back to school, it could be a, a different kid. Um, doesn't even have to be, be related to you. You can change the beneficiary. So one other question, you know, if, if like one of my kids, if their 529 is overfunded and then they have five kids of their own, can they split the 529 amongst five beneficiaries or does it have to be a single beneficiary? Ooh, that's a good question, Andy. Um, I, I believe that there's a way to split it. Okay. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that because that's a, it's a great um, it's a great question. I, Sorry I for all it. these what ifs. I'm taking us off track here, but no, it's great. 
Yeah. Um, you know, every, everyone's situation is a little bit different. So um, okay. that, that's an interesting scenario. Okay. So you're saying in a lot of cases, it's going to be best for them to reassign to a new beneficiary, whether it's a niece, nephew, or later on, it's their kids, which are now your grandchildren. Yep. It's a very tax efficient way to transfer wealth. But the original question is, uh, but like, okay, what if we don't want to do that? What if, what if your child goes to trade school, becomes a plumber? Life is great if you're a plumber, by the way. There's a shortage of uh, good plumbers and good tradespeople all over the nation. So good career choice. And then they say, well, I want to get married or I want to buy a house or I want to do this or that. Can we just take some money out of the 529 to, to pay for my wedding or my yep. house or, or whatever? Yep. Yeah. So you've paid the, you've paid the $45,000 in qualified expenses. You've got this huge chunk in our example here, $440,000 left over. So there's kind of two components of that, Andy. There's the, the basis component and the, the earnings component. So remember, you put $170,000 in here. Mm-hmm. And, and that was money that was after tax money. So you'd already paid taxes on that. So there's a little bit of good news. You don't get dinged on taking your basis out. Um, so in this case, you know, you spent $45,000. Uh, part of that was, was deemed to be just on a pro rata basis. Part of it was the basis, the initial contribution you put in. Part of it was the growth or the earnings component. So the good news is you're able to take out your basis, what you put in, because you've already paid taxes on that. So you're not going to get dinged again when you take that piece of it out. Now, and is the, that proportional or could like, could you take out it's that amount? Yeah, okay. It's, it's proportional. You can't pick and cho- unfortunately you can't pick and choose which dollars you're going to take out. Ah, oh, the IRS is so smart. They're always yeah, they, they, they of everything. <laughs> um, so, so here's, what's going to happen, uh, Andy, we're just going to assume you want to take out the whole amount. So, Part of that, there, there's no, you don't get dinged on. There's no penalties uh, or taxes there. But you've got this huge chunk of, of money that's experienced this tax-free growth. And because you didn't use it for uh, a qualified educational expense, the IRS is going to ding you for that. So they're going to get you in two ways. You're going to pay uh, a 10% penalty. That's at the federal level. Some states, I believe California, tax on another 2.5%. So I'm kind of simplifying here. So you're going to pay a 10% penalty. I'm just assuming it's just a federal rate. Um, And then you're going to pay on on what's left over of that earnings component. You're going to pay federal and state taxes, uh, and that's going to be taxed as as ordinary income, which are higher than than cap gains rates typically. So 10% penalty, and then you're going to get taxed. I plugged in, you're at a 32% tax rate. Um, You know, Andy, this is is 18 years down the road, let's say. So who knows what taxes are going to be then? Kind of an inherent uncertainty in this analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately that it's, it's hard to kind of give a, a single answer to this question, but I can, what I can do here is kind of walk you through what are the variables you've got to make these assumptions and then you can do the math for yourself. Um, so Andy, in this case, this person's going to pay about $28,000 in penalties. They're going to pay another $82,000 in, in taxes. Uh, so total tax and penalty about $110,000, um, at the end of the day, they're going to be able to, to take out in total about $374,000. Um, the other piece of it is taxes and penalties. So I just want to, to I just want to pause you right there and just say that that is quite that's a substantial tax and penalty owed. Yeah. But the initial investment still more than doubled net net after you withdraw yeah. the, the whole thing. So it's like, well, 
I know this is definitely not like a nightmare scenario. Like maybe it's not, it's not as good as the alternative, but this doesn't look too shabby to me. Yeah, to I think that that's right, Andy. It, it's it's not it's not a nightmare scenario. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Um, so let's go over here and, and let's look at the alternative, Andy. So let's say um, you hadn't funded the five two nine. You just put it into a taxable brokerage account instead. So you put one hundred seventy thousand dollars in and there. By, and by the way, can you you can. Can you gift your kids this amount of money in one year with the gift tax exemption, or is that only relative to the five two nine? You can't super fund. You can't super fund. We were talking about UTMAs at yeah. the top of the show. Like you can't super fund a UTMA. So it'd be yeah. it would be like thirty four thousand would be the most you could gift your child in year one without yeah, running. That's right. Or, or you could just take this money and put it in a taxable brokerage account um, that's in your name and say I'm going to use it down the road to pay for taxes. That's kind of what I'm assuming here, Andy. Got it. Okay. Okay. Carry carry on. So. Growth rate, I put in 5.6% here. Uh, Andy, in our in scenario number one, I had 6%. Yeah. Um, the reason is that the 529 gets tax-free growth. So what you inv- you're going to invest in stocks and bonds. Those are going to pay dividends. There's going to be some capital gains as you maybe rebalance. One of the nice things about a 529 is you don't pay uh, cap gains or dividend taxes as it grows. Uh, in a taxable account, you're going to, and that's going to weigh on your return. So... This is kind of a, this is where you're going to need to make an assumption about what the the quote unquote tax drag is. Um, I put in about 40 basis points here. I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, So, you know, I'm assuming the exact same investment strategy, but in a a tax advantage account, like a 529, you're going to get 6% growth Uh, in a a taxable account. You're going to get about 5.6%. And that adds up, Andy. So after 18 years, You've got about four hundred fifty thousand instead of the four hundred eighty thousand we had in scenario number one. Got it. Um, so you've got to pay some cap gains taxes there. Again, you've got the one hundred seventy thousand you initially put in, um, but your your money's grown quite a bit. You've got a pretty big cap gain here. Uh, again, we're forecasting down the road. Don't know what capital gains rates are going to be. I put in twenty percent here. You're going to have to pay uh, about fifty six, fifty seven thousand dollars in taxes. Uh, no penalties on this, right? Because it's just a taxable brokerage account. You can use it for whatever you want. So your total withdrawals here in this scenario, Andy, if you just put the money into a taxable brokerage account, you've got about $396,000. So um, you come out about $20,000 ahead um, if you had not super funded the 529, if you just put it into a, a taxable brokerage account. So, you know, I like your analysis, Andy. It's it's not a disaster, um, probably what you want to do though, I, I'm guessing what most people do in this case is they avoid those taxes and penalties. A couple things you can do. Um, there, there's a new option that you can put a portion of it. I think it's $30,000 or so might be 35. Um, you're able to put that into a Roth IRA for the beneficiary. So that's a good way to use some of that leftover. And then what most people are going to do, you're going to name a new beneficiary and you're going to use it to pay for, for educational expenses, whether it's, uh, college, trade school, uh, for niece, nephew, grandkids. Wow. I, Michael, I have so many questions. I almost think we need to, um, schedule another live stream just to go over these five twenty nine questions because that, you know, the 30,000 into a Roth, like that's, uh, or the IRA. Yep. Does that happen? Does that happen? Does the child need to be a certain age for you to spin off some of the funds into an IRA? Uh, I, I don't believe so, Andy. And I, I think that this is was part of the Secure 2.0. Um, so it's not in effect yet. I think it's going into effect in, in 2024. Um, I, I may be mistaken about that. Okay. Um, 
but but yeah, and, and it, unfortunately, it's it, there's a limit on on how much of that. So in this scenario, you know, we're talking about someone who's got four hundred thousand dollars left over, um, wouldn't be able to get the whole thing in there. But it does it does reduce. I would think of it, Andy. It reduces some of that risk of of overfunding um, a, a five twenty nine. One other, I think, uh, point to mention though is when you're comparing those two amounts, they're they're pretty similar. I mean, there's a twenty thousand dollar difference, but they're pretty similar. But the the, uh, the scenario one is wealth that has been transferred, right, to the child. So it's like it's it's a little bit lower, but it's already post transfer, not counting against that estate tax limit. So I think that that's a that's kind of a qualitative advantage, I think, in scenario one, even if the amount is a bit lower. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's a fair way to to think of it, Andy. We have a couple questions. Do you want to save these for our next mailbag or do you want to try and get through them real quick, Michael? It's obviously it's up to you, your show. Um, yeah, let's let's see what we got. Andy, do you have them pulled up? Can you I, I have them pulled up, yeah. So these are from our live YouTube stream. So you can always, anytime you're on the stream on YouTube, just go to YouTube uh, slash wealthchannel.com to follow our YouTube channel and you can comment, ask us questions in real time when we're doing these live streams. First comment, is there a way to do a catch-up contribution for 529s. I'm not quite sure what that means. Does that mean like over super funding or something? What, what do you think that means, Michael? Well, so so for example, Andy, if you're over age 50, you and I, uh, we might not look it, but we're under 50. So so we can put $6,500 into, uh, into an IRA this year. If you're over 50, you're allowed what's called a catch-up contribution. Um, and you can put an extra $1,000 in. So you could get 7,500, similar with a 401k. The idea being for folks who um, are behind and saving for retirement um, and, and maybe now later in their careers are making more money that, that they can kind of uh, that they can catch up. Um, th there's not a similar th there's not a similar feature uh, for the, the 529 plan. Um, but you can I mean, super fund it at any time. I mean, if your child is. 22 i think you can still super fund it is you that right super fund it yeah. yeah i mean there's some limitations of once you super fund it you got to wait five years to to do oh. it again okay. um so you can't do you, know, you can't do that amount every year you're essentially jamming five years you're pulling forward four years of, of contributions as well as the current year um so so that's that's the the most analogous um but but not there's no nothing truly similar to the catch-up contribution that would exist with an ira or a 401k Okay. Good question though. Uh, next one is, can I use funds in a 529 to pay prep school tuition, private school, Catholic school, whatever? I, I believe you can, isn't it? Any kind of qualified education expense, which is pretty, pretty broadly defined by the IRS. Um, yeah, I believe that's, I believe that's right. Uh, I believe that's right, Andy. Yeah, we, we, we might need to do some further research, but I'm going to say I, I believe that you can. Uh, next question, what are your favorite states for setting up a 529? Well, I, I personally, I'll throw in my two cents and then let the expert Michael answer, but I, I think Vanguard is Nevada. Um, and so just we can mention briefly, some states will give you additional tax benefits if you set up your own state's 529 plan. But I think in most cases, it's not worth it because your own state's plan may have higher fees. It may have worse uh, investment options. And it may be that those benefits only, you can only redeem those benefits if you send, if, if you are like going to an in-state university or, or something like that. So in my opinion, I think the best states are going to be like the, the ones that the, the big discount brokerages work with. 
So I don't know who like Fidelity or Schwab has their 529s with, but I believe Vanguard is Nevada. Yeah, I think I think Vanguard's Nevada. Um, Andy, I, I don't know. At least I'm not aware of there being restrictions on you have to use it for for in-state institutions. Um, maybe that exists with some of the state 529s. I haven't. I haven't or you at least at least used to that you would get. Yeah. Some kind. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'm mixing it up with another education savings plan but anyway yeah that you can buy some I, I think when you buy um like prepaid credits um you know we talked about the uncertainty with the 529 the way to eliminate that is you can some states will offer prepaid credits where you uh pay a certain amount and you, you can essentially know that you funded exactly what the expenses are going to be um okay. in the future i think there might be some limitations on on that one but um just to, to kind of quantify this a little bit so um yeah each state is different andy um, you live in, so you live in Michigan, I believe Michigan, uh, caps the state tax deduction at, at $10,000 for uh, a 529 contribution. So what that means is you can, um, uh, take the, the $10,000. If, if you contributed more than that, you're capped at $10,000. Um, and you can reduce your income for purposes of calculating your state income tax by $10,000. So I think Michigan has a flat four and a quarter state tax rate. So, right, so you'd be saving $425 one time. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So that's the benefit of, um, of going through, um, the, the Michigan plan. Um, Andy, I live in Oregon. I think we get a $350 tax credit, um, little bit different. So it's, it's not a deduction, it's a credit instead, but kind of works out to the same but, amount. And then you have to um, weigh that though, is the Oregon 529, the Michigan 529, what kind of funds are you then investing in? Do they have, are they as efficient? Do they have as low of fees and expenses as a Vanguard plan? You know, because the Vanguard yep. ones have very, very low fees and expenses. Yep. You know, either way, Andy, pretty marginal difference. I mean, the important thing is get them, you know, we talk about working big to small and, and not kind of tripping over nickels here. Get the money into the 529. If, if you go with the Vanguard one instead of your, your state plan and you get slightly lower fees, but you miss out on a $350 credit, um, not a huge deal. The, the big thing is you, you fund the thing and you get the money in there and you start getting that tax-free growth. Totally, totally. Um, Andy, do we have any other questions here? Did we knock them all out? I think we knocked them all out. I mean, this was really fun, Mike. I hope you're going to let me, you know, come on the stream and do this again with you because I love these mailbag questions. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, Andy. Boy, the time kind of flew by here. Um, I want to thank everyone who, who wrote in with these questions. I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the show. Uh, your feedback has been uh, tremendous. It's really appreciated. Uh, we're going to do this again, Andy. So if you're listening to this, if you have a question you want us to answer in a future mailbag edition, you can write into info at wealthchannel.com. Uh, we'd love to answer it on the air in a future episode. And uh, Andy, you did all right. So I think I will have you back sometime to, to do another one of these. Yeah, I appreciate it. Anytime. Just let me know when and where I'll be here. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you soon. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.